9, 2 through 9. The Transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling bright, such as no one on earth could brighten them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. The coming of Elijah. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are the soil. Your word is the seed. Please plant it. Prepare the soil. Whatever you need to do, Lord. Um, but may your word germinate in us. May it grow well, be nourished, bear good fruit. May that fruit be for our neighbors, for our friends, also our enemies, for our communities. May it be for ourselves, and may it be in praise to you. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We uh, try to stick with the Christian year here at Peak Community Church, and one of the great things about doing that is you get to walk through Jesus' life. Um, even though we spent some time in Esther, um, for the most part, we're going to keep track of Jesus' life, and not just his birth. Not just his birth and not just his death and resurrection, but some other important moments too. And this one's a really important moment. This is called the Transfiguration. So every year, the Sunday before Lent starts, which starts this Wednesday, uh, we think and talk about the Transfiguration of Jesus Christ. The Transfiguration is really important um, in the life of Jesus, and it really should not be considered outside of its context. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the context here um, before we get too deep into the transfiguration. Uh, the, they don't know which mountain it was that Jesus went up. Uh, they're not sure. There's two contenders, Mount Hermon and Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is the traditional one, and maybe that's it. Um, but Mount Hermon is a really strong contender. And so uh, part of the reason is because in the story right before this, there's a really famous conversation that Jesus has with Peter and his disciples, and he says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And he does it in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is named after a guy named, not Caesar, Philip. And so that's why it's called Caesarea Philippi, um, because it's named after a guy named Philip, but it's in a really significant location at the base of the biggest mountain in the region, Mount Hermon. It's a huge mountain. It is, uh, I mean, our standards, it's puny, but for them, it's really big. Uh, it's about, it's a little over 9,000 feet. It always has snow at the top, um, which is really unusual in a flat desert area, especially with the lowest place on earth. 
the Dead Sea, um, we have an extremely tall mountain, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon uh, is sort of like mythologically significant. Um, a lot of uh, pagan religions were sort of born there. The Canaanites thought that the gods dwelt there. Um, and uh, later they even thought that the god Pan uh, was from Mount Hermon. Um, it's the beginning of the Jordan River. And what I mean is the, there's a cave. And uh, we, we saw, we didn't see the cave, but we saw the beginning of the Jordan. And, and the Jordan River just gushes out. I mean, tons of water coming out of seemingly nowhere. It's pretty dramatic. Um, it's not a trickle. It's not like a bubbling spring or anything like that. It's a pretty violent um, thing. And this cave is what they thought was the gates of Hades. They thought this was the gate to the underworld. And it's why um, Jesus says, uh, not even the gates of Hades can prevail against you, Peter. Uh, and so there, there's like all this uh, religious sort of mythology around this mountain. And so it's the perfect place for Jesus to come along and say, who do you say that I am? Compared to all these other gods, compared to all this power, <coughs> And we need to think about this power for a second. I mean, without the Jordan River, there would have been no permanent civilization there. There would have been no irrigation. There would have been no farming. It would just been a nomadic desert. Um, and so the Jordan River begins in this mysterious cave and this mysterious mountain that stands out about, among all the other mountains. And so, so there's, there's all this power, this mysterious power associated with it. And so Jesus brings them to this spot and he says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, Peter gets it right. Peter says, I think you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, ah, oh, that's great. You finally get it, Peter. And then in the very next sentence, Jesus goes on to say what that means. And Peter gets extremely upset with him. Because Jesus will go on to say, what it means to be the Messiah is that I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by everybody, especially the people that you guys all look up to. And then I'm going to be killed. Peter is not okay with this. Peter, Peter in fact, he pulls Jesus aside like a child. He pulls him aside and he, he says, you need to stop this, this talk, this conversation, what you're saying, it needs to end. And then Jesus comes right back at him and he actually calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. So they have a little bit of a, a, little bit of a, a debate there. Um, there's a question. Going into the transfiguration, there's a question of what it means to be the Messiah. And, and taking, taking the disciples to this place, Caesarea Philippi, at the base of Mount Hermon, the base of this, this mythological mountain, is a really good place because it forces the confrontation for us to really understand what does it mean to be when Jesus says he's God? What does that actually mean? It would be a lot like if Jesus took his disciples and they bought tickets to the Super Bowl, and they were sitting in the stands, and they looked out, and they looked at all these people. They looked at titans on the field. You know, they come mysteriously from caves, these titans. And they come to do battle. And they're the best. They're the best of the best. They're incredible. And not only are there titans on the field, but there's also these, these like, godlike people up, way up high in boxes. 
who sort of look down over everything and they own it, or are they just celebrities? So you have the gods of Kelsey, the gods of Swift. You have all these gods. And, and, if, and if, Jesus, if Jesus had brought his disciples there, it would have been a great place to say, who do you say that I am compared to all these other gods? Now, of course, we don't call them gods now. And, and don't worry, this isn't going to be a sermon where I knock the Super Bowl. That's not what I'm going to do. Um, but, but we do have a difficult time, like Peter, trying to understand what it means to be divinity, what it means to be God. And Jesus challenges this significantly. Again, he gets the word right, Messiah, but what does Messiah even mean? Um, now we get to the transfiguration. All right, let's talk about the transfiguration. Uh, transfiguration, uh, it is an unusual event. Again, they're on a mountain, and Jesus is all aglow, and he's talking with Elijah and Moses. And, and um, you know, here again, Peter does sort of miss it. Uh, this is a great moment for Peter. If Peter has this idea of divinity where Jesus never suffers, and Jesus is all-powerful, and all this kind of stuff, if he... If he imagines Jesus to be just stronger than all the other gods, well, then this, this is playing into his perception perfectly. Um, so Jesus looks up, he sees him speaking with Moses, Elijah, the, you know, the representative of the law, representative of the prophets. And, and he, you know, Peter signed up to be with a, with a rabbi, with a great rabbi who was a great teacher. And he thought, this is, this is, so then the transfiguration is far beyond what he could have ever imagined. So it's enough to start a religious movement. It's enough at least to build a visitor center. It is, it, is, it is maybe even the start of a new religion. We could call the religion transfigurationism. I mean, again, like we're, we're so used to talking about the cross and the resurrection that we forget that in a major religious event has happened on this mountain. Somebody is glowing. That doesn't happen every day. So maybe in transfigurationism, you know, we can sort of figure this out. Like, it only happens on mountains. Um, and maybe you, yes, you could even glow. And that would be the promise of the movement if you just make sure you give weekly or whatever. Um, Peter picks the parts of divinity that he likes. Um, the power, the glory, but what he's missing is everything Jesus has just said about what is supposed to happen to the Messiah and what is supposed to happen to his followers. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This stuff just doesn't fit into Jesus, Peter's idea of divinity. The glory that comes in the suffering. Jesus' betrayal. Jesus' execution. Peter can't handle any of that, and in fact, when it does happen, Peter will deny Christ and leave. The Transfiguration will show us two things. It shows us what it means to be God, first of all. We think of divinity a lot of the way Peter thinks about it. We think about it in nature. We think about it as power, as great mystery. Sometimes we think of divinity as the gap between scientific knowledge and other scientific knowledge, the places where science hasn't found the answer yet. 
or we think about it as some sort of all-encompassing life force, or we think about it as something totally unknowable, and then every once in a while there's somebody who comes along and shows us a little glimpse of it. So Jesus shows us a glimpse, but maybe other people show us another glimpse or something like that. Um, but in, in the end of the day, it's whatever is strongest, whatever is most beautiful, whatever wins, that's often what we think of as divinity. Here, divinity or the image of God is found nowhere else except in Jesus. If we want to have something to worship, we do not infuse Jesus with our idea of divinity, but we let him reveal divinity to us. And here what it means is that by losing one's life, by failing, by suffering, is the way to salvation. Jesus did, in fact, fail. Jesus was weak. We want to make his death heroic. We want to make him into a hero. But unlike the titans on the football field, his death was not an epic showdown. He was snuffed out like a, like a burning wick. He was flicked away by, like a bug by the great shrugging beast of empire that hardly even noticed he had died. He was crucified among a thousand other people. His little movement crumbled to nothing. Everyone scattered and left. In fact, part of what brought him down was the very movement he was building. Hardly lasted four years. Even in the garden, Jesus didn't want to go through with it. And he asked if he didn't have to. It's hard to look at all that. It's hard to look at all that failure, all that loss, and to say, that's what we're wrapping our lives around. But it's precisely what Jesus says. The Son of God must suffer, be rejected, and get killed. So, if we want to understand divinity, we have to look at Jesus. The second thing this transfiguration shows us is if we want to understand what it means to be human, we won't find it by looking at people who are sort of like human plus, or like perfect humans. We won't, we won't find out what it means to be human by, by looking at the immense strength of whatever's around us. We won't even find it by taking an honest look within ourselves. We will discover the meaning of humanity by looking at Jesus. Did you know that it's not a sin to be weak? Did you know that it's not a sin to make a mistake? It's not a sin to fail. Jesus did all these things, and he was without sin. What is sin? Sin is an attempt to cover up, to deceive ourselves and others into thinking that we never fail. We never mess up. We never fall or we never have limitations. Sin is acting like God's. Now there is such a thing as human glory. It is wonderful. It's also not a sin to succeed. It's also not a sin to do well, to achieve something, to achieve even greatness. And that's one of the things that's so wonderful about the Super Bowl, if you're gonna watch it. I plan to watch it, and I'm excited to see people achieve. I'm excited to see them do well. But there's a difference between human glory and divine glory. 
And the thing about human glory is that it always fades. Always. It's always finite. It's always temporary. Jeff Garland and I were talking this week, and he, he gave me a really good uh, paragraph for my sermon. So thanks, Jeff. Um, we were talking about that famous line in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The Hebrew word is hevel. And a lot of people obviously translate that vanity. That's how most of us know that. Um, but also quite a few people don't like that translation, including Jeff Garland. And um, so Jeff, I love his suggestion for what it should be. He suggests smoke. Smoke. And I think this is a great suggestion for a translation. Because what it suggests is that there is some activity in human life. There's something that goes on. There's something kind of important, really. I mean, if you're, if you're generating smoke, it means you're probably cooking, you're probably warming your home, and, and all these kinds of things. All this stuff is important, but at the end of the day, it always becomes smoke. It's always temporary. It's always finite. Hevel also happens to be the Hebrew word for Cain's brother, Abel. We just pronounce it differently in English, but it's the same word. A life cut short. One we know very little bit, little bit about. A life up in smoke. After all the glowing and the historic meeting on the mount, the glory fades. Like all glory. And the disciples look up and all they see, this is what Mark says, all they see is Jesus. Human glory fades, the glory of God is something else. The glory of God is the astonishing realization, like a flash of lightning, that in the most awful mess, in our deepest confusion and in the midst of utter loss, in failed dreams and in missed opportunities, in debilitating weakness, in the unhealed wound, in burning shame, there is Jesus all aglow. It doesn't make sense, and it shouldn't. It's a strange glory. We have to be taught it. And so we return here, week after week, hearing the good news. Of course, the good news is always Christ crucified. And we come here week after week, remembering how broken bread becomes the body of God. And so slowly we learn Oh, we do that over and over again. We start to learn what the glory of God is like. And we learn that the glory of God is not an escape from the excruciating boredom and pain of existence. That we, it's, it, it's not getting away from it. And that that will be the way to find God. But it's in the very midst of it. In the very midst where in a flash, life is transfigured. And there we find Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Lord, it is good that we have been here and beheld your glory. Teach us the way of the cross and bring us into the abundance of your eternal life. In the name of the Son, we pray. May the peace of Christ go with you, wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. 
and may he bring you home rejoicing once again to these doors. Amen. Go in peace.